Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I have the immense privilege of chatting with Deshaun Charles Winslow, author of In West Mills, which was published in June 2019. In less than a year, this stunning debut novel has not only received praise from dozens of other incredible authors, but In West Mills was recently nominated for an LA Times Book Prize. For anyone else who read and loved this book as much as I did, you'll definitely understand why In West Mills is so special and worthy of all the praise and nominations. Set in West Mills, North Carolina, this novel introduces readers to characters who jump off the page and possess voices so rich and real that it feels like you are actually in West Mills. The story begins in 1941 and follows the struggles and blessings of Azalea Knott Center, a young woman living in West Mills, who, alongside her friends Otis Lee, Pep, and Valley, is just trying to live life to the fullest and doesn't take kindly to everyone thinking they know what's best for her. Spanning across 46 years, we see Knott take on new adventures, but she never loses her spirit or sight of who she truly is. I loved this book so much and had so much fun talking to Deshaun about his beautiful gift as a storyteller, whether it's ever too late to tell someone you love them, and how he wants his characters to live on in our hearts and souls forever. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so, so excited to be here with Deshaun Charles Winslow, and we were just talking about, and I think this is the perfect place to start, Deshaun has been nominated for an LA Times Book Award for his debut novel, In West Mills, and I just have to ask, how are you feeling about it all? Have you been able to catch your breath yet? I have not caught my breath. It's, <laughs> I'm still shocked that the book exists at all, and now to be finalist book prize. It is amazing. I was shocked with the Center for Fiction and now here comes this and (laughs) I'm just like, wait. I'm so excited (laughs) to talk to you. Um, So I picked up In West Mills and absolutely devoured it because it is, and this is no exaggeration whatsoever. I know us Americans are are prone to exaggerating, but this (laughs) is without a doubt one of the most beautiful books I have ever read. And and as soon as we go into the questions, I know listeners will absolutely understand why. And your book has only been out for less than a year. So it came out in June, didn't it? So it's it's still early days. It's not even been a year yet. There has been so much praise for it. As we've just talked about, you've just been nominated for an award, um, which is no surprise alongside some other fantastic authors. So you were definitely in good company. And like I said, there's just been so much praise. I absolutely loved it. And all these accolades, all these fantastic reviews. And, you know, I've seen a couple of YouTube videos where you've been interviewed. You're on the Entertainment Weekly sofa. And I was just kind of wondering, you know, as an author, this is your debut novel. So this is your baby. This is this yeah. is just out there in the world. And I was just wondering, when you go into bookstores, you know, whether you're actually looking for your book to see where it's sitting on the shelf or um, if you're, you know, in there browsing for yourself um, and you see your novel on the shelf or you see someone's hands holding at an event, what do you actually feel? It is strange. The first couple of months, every time I went into a bookstore, I would go to see if there were copies there. <laughs> and, um, but eventually that, that I decided I should stop 
going to look for the book, you know. Um, but when I do, when I do walk into a store and I see it now, I still kind of say, oh, you know, oh, they have the book. Like, there's a surprise, you know. Um, but at an event, when I see some people with a copy of it in their hand, it it is strange for like five seconds because I see it like I have maybe four copies at home and two is on my shelf. One might be on my living room table or something, you know, and then one is in the bedroom somewhere. And I'm at this point, I just I'm used to seeing it in a private space more so than I see it in a public space. And so it's always strange when I see this familiar thing in a stranger's hand and I'm like, Oh, it's not just mine, you know? <laughs> and it, it's such a a beautiful thing, but also I can imagine such a, a scary thing at the same time to see something you have created out there in the world for other people to to enjoy, to interpret, to hold on to. And I can only imagine. I mean, I'm sure it just is just blows your mind, doesn't it? It does. It's it's a beautiful feeling. It is scary because you because you want to know like are they going to like it, you know? <laughs> and if they don't like it, would they would they say it in a nice way or? <laughs> we don't have know? time for those people, Deshaun. So uh, <laughs> we're just going to absolutely go past those people. I, I only want to associate myself with people who absolutely loved in West Mills <laughs> because it is just I I had the great fortune of of reading it the first time. I messaged you. I told you how much I loved it. We connected on Twitter, yeah. um, and I also had the great privilege of, of rereading it because I wanted to get lost in in the world of in West Mills again and. It was, it was so wonderful. And like I said at the beginning, one of the most beautiful books, and it was definitely one of my favorites of last year. The characters, I imagine that you become not just very protective of your book, but also very protective of your characters as well, because yes. it's almost sometimes, it's kind of a funny notion or a concept if you think about it. Your book is a thing, and mm -hmm. your characters are a thing. And they, right. they obviously go together, yeah. but at the same time, those characters stay with you. Yeah. And those characters have a mind of their own. And I can imagine that during the writing process, I know certainly when I've written a few things, you know, just, just for fun and stuff, those mm -hmm. characters demand to be heard. They demand to have their time in yes. the book. And I, I was wondering, actually, did your characters speak to you? really from the beginning or did some of the voices kind of come a little bit after as you started getting into writing? How, how did the voices come through for you? Yeah, some of the voices like Knott's and Otis Lee's voice were kind of with me from the beginning. The other characters though, I had to sort of decide how they speak and what sort of things they say. And so that was, most of the work was with them. But, but Knott's voice was with me from the beginning. Yeah, definitely. And it's good because she's with us from the beginning as well. So we, we get an entire book of not, and I can't wait to talk about her. But your ability to craft such a beautiful story, and it's almost where you're flipping through and you're like, how have I already gotten to page 200? I'm not done yet. I'm not even close to wanting to be done with these characters with this story. And your ability to craft such a beautiful story, in large part, because of these these characters that are just so delicious, if I can say, to, to be a part of, I believe why so many readers, so many other authors, so many critics, so many publications 
really have said that you have a gift. I mean, all I have to do is look on the back of the book, and some of these authors have just really <laughs> summarized exactly how I feel. I'm, I'm feeling very inarticulate at the moment of how I'm trying to describe it. But how do you feel when someone says that you have a gift? And in what ways, when someone says that to you, do you also feel that this book has been a gift for you? When someone tells me I have a gift, the first reaction is to sort of reject that. And that mostly goes on, inter I've learned how to keep it internal, that, that rejection. And it's mostly just because I've come from a place where we just don't really, you know, we don't really talk about ourselves that much. You know, we don't really congratulate ourselves. So it's taken me some time to, to allow myself to accept the compliment. But the book is definitely a gift to me because it was just me wanting to write about essentially like my hometown and my mom's hometown, which, you know, which is right next door to my hometown. And I would have never imagined that it would have made it into the world, you know, that people seem to like it. So that that is a big gift of something that that was initially just for me has become something that everyone has access to. That's a really big gift. <laughs> and we are very lucky and very privileged to have that gift to be able to read it because I have to say, as someone who is potentially looking to write a book, it's very safe to keep it in your head. It's yeah. very safe. No one yeah. can, can pick it apart. No one can judge it. It is very safe. Mm -hmm. But then there has to be a part of you that crosses that line and says, you know what? Yeah, it's safe up here, but I have to do it. So right. at what point when you were creating this story, did you finally just say, you know what? I'm ready. I'm ready to put it on paper. So when I decided to start applying to MFA programs, I was like, if I'm going to put a story out there, it's going to be something that's just like related to home. So I didn't use in West Mills, or, or the story that it was before it became a novel, I was teetering with that, but not really writing it. But when I began to start writing it seriously and decided that I would put it up for workshop, the thought in my mind was, this is probably going to be pretty different from anything else in the class. And I should not be apprehensive about that or ashamed about that, you know, and it will give people a look into my life and my background. But the history of it just kind of reflects who I am as a person and the type of people I come from. And I said, you know what, I'm going to, this is no longer a project just for the, for the Word document. I'm going to share it. And you know what's great as well is all the authors that I've had the immense privilege to speak to all the authors that I've met at events and been able to ask them that question, you know, where this comes from and, and how you went through that journey, it's all different. And, and that's mm -hmm. what's so exciting is being able to hear that. And, you know, you read a book, you connect with it, you love it, you brag about it, you recommend it, but you don't mm -hmm. actually know how it kind of is made. And the characters will go ahead and start talking about not because I love her so much. So I, <laughs> I, I feel like, Maybe I was supposed to find not a little challenging and yeah. to kind of look at look at her and, and read about her and be like, oh, come on, not. But I <laughs> loved her. I loved her so much. Um, I loved her flaws and all. And 
you know, at times, as I, as I said to you, I, and I messaged you, so we have this character, so Azalea, not center, and mm-hmm. she is your main character, and she has her neighbors who live in her community, so she has Penelope and Otis Lee loving, so Penelope goes by Pep, which I love, and man, does she have Pep, I'll tell you, and um, these, these names are perfect, so they look after her, and you know, at times I wanted to join them, and help steer not on the quote unquote right path, whatever that means. It's so subjective. But other times I I agreed with her decision. You know, she's when the book starts in 1941, she's she's in her her late 20s and she doesn't really feel like she has to justify for her behavior at all. And (laughs) at all, she's very, very fiery. And it's easy to see why she struggles because on one hand, she's over here living her life and she's like, I don't feel like I should have to justify or anyone tell me what to do. But at the same time, obviously we find out later in the book that the choices that she makes, I think work out in the end, but we obviously see that struggle and those challenges come quite strongly throughout the book. I would love for you to touch on that, but also to talk about what you enjoyed the most about creating Azalea Not Center. In terms of like a quick summary of the book, the way I would sum it up is it is about a, a woman who refuses to live by societal norms. And there is a point in which life sort of almost forces her to live by societal norms, but she still stands her ground. But the people around her are just, they have a lot of trouble with that. <laughs> and so she's struggling internally, and but mostly externally with these people who just want to her to live a, a different life than what she has chosen. I loved creating this character because she's based on a woman who I did know. And I write from a place of what if. And so the woman who I knew as a child who was named Not, she was also an alcoholic, but she didn't have children. She never married or maybe... I'm wrong. I think she did actually marry someone briefly, but she definitely did not have children and she was not a teacher. And so I thought, what would it be like for this this person who is a teacher who comes from a, a, a good home, quote, to, you know, um, to be an alcoholic, to not want children, to have children <laughs> and then but still decide to live her life that just because she had given birth didn't mean that she had to take on this life that she didn't want. And so that was really fun playing with that what if. Yeah, and that is such an interesting plot and topic and very timely, especially because a lot of women have elected not to have children and they have decided not to perhaps go down that path for whatever reason and again, it's no one's business as to why that is the case, nor right. is it really something that anyone should have to justify. Society still, even in 2020, decides that it, it needs to put its two cents in, so to speak, right. especially because, and, and this is set, you know, between 1941 and, and it goes across m- multiple, multiple years and we see multiple generations and not comes from a very traditional family. It, it is very interesting, especially for that time in 1941. I can't even imagine what it would have been like, you know, during wartime to be a woman in her community and for people to kind of say, well, 
what's missing here? What what's different about this person? Right. Why does she feel like she has the right not to right. do what a woman should do, which is to have yeah. children? It is How very free. <laughs> it, exactly. How dare she want to be free of this responsibility that all women are supposed to want to do? And it would be almost unheard of, wouldn't it, at that time to do that. Did you find those parallels and similarities with people that you grew up with and knew in, in your actual community back home? Yeah, what, what I did when I think back on the people, I, the older people who I grew up around and uh, mostly people who helped raise me, most of them had children, at least three to five children. And I remember when I was in the early stages of writing a book, I remember thinking, I wonder if they wanted to have all those kids. My maternal grandmother had nine and my paternal grandmother had five. And so, especially when I would think about my maternal grandmother, I would just think, gosh, I wonder if she really wanted nine kids, <laughs> you know? and what her life would have been like if she had only had two, you know. But but to answer your question, what I've noticed is that everyone seemed to have kids. And I thought it was interesting that not the real not didn't have any. And so I was like, well, now I get to play with the what if she did. <laughs> that's, that's the great thing about fiction, isn't it? You can absolutely take that. And, and it's funny because, you know, going back to your maternal grandmother, did she want to have nine children? You know what? That could have been the case. She maybe did want to have nine children. Maybe she didn't. And it's, it's, it's one of those things you can just play with. It's great. Right. Oh, I love that. And, and that's so clever that you did that. And there are so many clever twists of irony in your book. So I actually was wondering if I'm maybe the first person to, cause I find these things and I'll speak to authors and I'll say, Oh, did you mean to do that or whatever? And, and some of them are like, wow, I'd never thought of that. Or some of them are like, I think maybe you're thinking about that too much. But also I loved that her father is a dentist and I felt at times that perhaps some <laughs> of the characters felt like it was like pulling teeth to try yeah. and get her to do things. Is that what you were trying to do with the dentist thing or did I maybe pick up on that too much? That with the dentist thing, no, but it makes perfect sense because she is always getting chewed out. <laughs> That's a perfect way to talk about it as well. Right. She's always getting chewed out. She does her fair share of chewing too on people. But I did want to show that while she is an adult and she has some responsibility to educate people, that she is still a young person and still needs to be like educated herself on like life. And that's why I have Pep and Otis Lee from the very beginning kind of talking the first time we see them, the three of them together, she is sitting down like a pupil and they are both standing up, looking down at her, you know? And so that was, that was intentional. <laughs> the end of the chapter. So I love when, when Breezy uh, is seeing her walk off, he's like, she took our bowl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I absolutely love it. It's like, she is not done. She is going to make a point. She's going to take the uh, the bowl with her and uh, she's not even going to look back. I absolutely love that because it's like, it's such a comical first chapter. Anyways, she goes over to their house. She's just thrown Pratt out. So Pratt yes. is her longtime, I'll say significant other, her lover. And we'll talk about Pratt in a minute because I was heartbroken that you sent him off to war. Uh, I That was the one thing, Deshaun, that I was yeah. just like, 
how could you send him away? I was so heartbroken. But we'll talk about that later because he does come back, so it's fine. So that first chapter is so comical because she goes over, she's just thrown him out, and she's served a biscuit and an egg, and she's just sat there, and they are not holding back how they feel about the fact that she's just thrown him out again. And I loved all of them, but there's something about the women in this book that I just... I want to have a conversation with them. I want to learn from them and and listen to them and and be part of their community. I want to go over and hang out with them is what I want to do. Um, I know Otis Lee is a very special character in this book, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But as you said, she gets chewed out, but she can hold her own. She is very forceful and of course she has this red hair and right. you know you know with the, how they associate with people who have red hair they're fiery they're passionate right. um and yeah i i wanted to know about how you wrote the women in your book because obviously you know you have your maternal grandmother who had nine children you have these women in your own life who obviously had a very big impact on you and i was just wondering how that helped you and how it, it made it maybe enjoyable as well to write women in your book yeah. So my life, unfortunately, I didn't get to know my maternal grandmother well. She passed away when I was very small, but she had six daughters and three sons. And so her six daughters, my mom and my aunts, they raised me. Uh, the ones that still lived in town especially raised me. And I mean, I had a father in the home and stuff, too. But I was just surrounded by women at every turn. And then uh, once I got to the age where it was pretty clear that I was gay, then I got more more pushed into the women's circle because the men just did not know how to deal with a little boy who was presenting as gay. And so I think it was just easier for everyone if I just went. <laughs> but I was with my aunts all the time, with my mom all the time, with my older like babysitters. Many of them were like the first cousins to my grandmother. They sort of stepped in and became like the grandmother. And just always surrounded by women and listening to them talk and listening to the things they talk about to each other and the things that they say about men, the good and the bad, (laughs) you know. And so I, I was able to pick up on that and learn a lot from them. And some of them taught me very direct messages about life almost as if I were a woman. And sometimes they would say, you won't have to deal with this because you're a man or you're a boy, but so-and-so and so-and-so. So So I I was able to learn things from a different point of view. Yeah, that's why I think the book is so heavily populated with women and that they all have such a pronounced role. There's something so special about getting that perspective firsthand and also learning life's lessons through their words, through their stories, and to be able to to utilize that knowledge and have that. And, and as you proceed through life, you are, I think, a more sympathetic and more empathetic person because you've considered both ends. And I think that, you know, it's obviously a very different dynamic than if you were to grow up with, you know, say five brothers or if you were to be around, you know, a lot of men. But again, I think that's perhaps why the women characters in this book were just so profound, so beautiful. But again, at the same time, because their voices carried through so strongly, 
on and off the page, it also made it very complimentary for when they were talking with men as well. And for me, it just made the community so much more richer. Um, and, and that's what I thought was just so lovely about it. But again, at the same time, the men held their own. Looking at the fact that Not loves Pratt and they get back together, you know, he comes back before he, he decides to go and enlist. It's almost like he had to step aside in order for her to have the story and have the path that she did. Um, yeah. When you push someone away so many times and man, he has patience for her. And I think yes. it's because he loves her so much. He's kind of like the not whisperer in a way. Like he can yeah. talk her down and he can love her unlike anybody else ever can. You know, it's kind of not hard to blame him for wanting to on with life and to really find something that defines him for being mm. him not being not's lover not being not's partner not being just someone within the community who wanted to go off and have his own story exactly. um, and the more people look to him and say you know it's just not being not and the more help she got the more she resists but i was just wondering we see a lot of the characters go through some really big tests yeah. i was just wondering maybe through your own experience or just what you've observed through life, how do you think these tests, whether they're personal tests or professional tests or just, you know, emotional tests, how those tests that we put ourselves through help us ultimately grow stronger and perhaps change our story? I think that testing ourselves, testing our strengths, especially, is essentially how we grow. I left home at an early age and just sought independence and refuse to go back because I know I have a pretty good idea how my life would have turned out had I hometown. And for me as a, a gay man in a small town, it would not have been good. And so the only way was to test to see how much I could take on my own, how much I could handle on my own, or I would have just fell into the comfort of my parents. And I think that Pratt, Pratt has to do that because he's sort of been the foster parent to his his sister's kids while she was in jail for that month. And then he's not a lover, but he's also kind of like her AA person. <laughs> and so he told Otis Lee, he's like, I, you know, I got to go. I, I'm spinning my wheels here. And so I think when he enrolls, even though I don't spend a lot of time with Pratt during that period, when he enrolls, he just wants to be needed, like you said, by someone who will actually recognize him. And in this case, it's the military. Yeah. But I think I think life's tests are definitely yield growth. Yeah, and they don't have to be big tests for right. us to change and for us to grow. It can be a change in location where we live. It can yes. be meeting a new person. Not for her birthday, goes down and she meets a man who mm. isn't a very big chapter in her life, but he has a role. Yeah. And uh, it's very interesting because the way in which we see these characters through Knott's perspective, but also through their own perspective, which I really enjoy. I say this to a lot of authors. I really, truly love books when we hear from different perspectives. There's nothing wrong with having one character telling us what journey they're going on. But when we get to hear from other sides, um, it just gives us more to work with, more to learn from. Um, and we see not through Otis Lee's eyes, but we also get to see his own life, his own family. I think that 
you might have perhaps, I might be guessing here, but I was going to ask, you might have maybe thought about putting Not and Otis Lee together at one point. I'm thinking maybe that might have been the case. Did you go back and forth? Yeah, it mostly was no. But there were times when I'm like, when I was like, oh, I think I will, I think I will let them have a romantic relationship. They don't act on. Yeah. You know, and then finally I decided, no, I'm keeping it platonic. It's really interesting because Pep and Not have similarities. They're both very strong-willed women. They are very ferociously loyal to Mm -hmm. their community. But at the same time, there's something about Pep that Not isn't like and, and vice versa. And I really love Pep and Otis Lee together and yeah. how much they love on each other, how much he loves her curves. I right. I, I love that, how beautiful he makes her feel. Yeah. And I find that because he has his own life to worry about, we also see him struggle mm-hmm. and he realizes that the past that stays with him throughout the entire book that we learn about is not something that he can fix. He lives vicariously through her a little bit in in the sense that he sees aspects of his sister Mm -hmm. who we see Essie. Um, But I love how much he cares about every woman in his life, whether it is Essie, whether it's Ma Noni, whether Mm -hmm. it is Pep, whether it is not. Um, And, this sense of community and this lasting connection is one of my favorite aspects of the book. There's there's a reason that in West Mills resonates with you because you know before you even start the story that this town, this place is going to be important, not just as the setting of this story, but for these characters as well and what that community means to them. And, And especially listening to what you said about your own family connections, I would love to know whether you think our sense of belonging and our need for connection changes as we age. And if it does, how does it change? Yeah, I think it's very case by case. I find that when I get older, I do want to belong, but I don't need to belong to as many people. (laughs) You know, I find myself, I'm 40, and I find myself looking for just a very few friends. Uh, versus needing to be loved by 20 people. And that was quite different, you know, when I was younger. And I just always wanted to be accepted all the time. But I think that sometimes it becomes opposite. I think when some people get older and they feel like they want to, maybe they were an introvert for most of their lives, and now they want to be more social. So I think it's very case by very case by case. But I do believe that we that we change in one way or the other. And there's something really interesting about how we become comfortable in our own skin and how we mm. become become comfortable in our own company. I'm 35 soon, so we're more or less you know, similar in age. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you found this, but as you reach a certain point in your life, regardless of whether you're with somebody or whether you're not, or just how you're feeling on that day, to be honest, the feeling of being with yourself is very uh, rewarding, but also very scary at the same time. Whether you can be in your own company, whether you can accept the fact that you are enough and that you are allowed to take up the amount of space that you take up, Mm -hmm. 
is a very interesting concept to me. And not is a very independent person. Yes. But do you know what? I also think, I think all your characters have elements of independence in them, but some yeah. of them just choose to live their life with other people. Right. Whereas yeah. not and the, the stuff she goes through. So we, I'm not giving it away too much, but she ends up having two daughters. Right. And she still very much lives on her own terms through it all. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I almost thought to myself, because we see her give both of her daughters up for adoption to two very loving yeah. families, two very different loving families. Yeah. And obviously there's, like you said, the game of what ifs. Right. And how different her life would have been, obviously, if she had kept her daughters in her home. Mm -hmm. And as you said, she does love a bit of moonshine. She does love her books. Well, yeah. for anybody in the UK who doesn't know what Moonshine is, it's probably better that you don't, to be fair. Um, it is very strong stuff. It's just fascinating to think about how different this story would have been if, in a traditional sense, she had kept her daughters and lived to the way that society would have wanted her to. But I don't think it would have been the story that I loved and couldn't put down if that were the case. Do you think that's odd that I feel that way no because i remember at one point thinking maybe i'll have her raise the kids and then i thought well if i do that then the novel might become too much about the two daughters because how can you ignore two daughters who are being raised on a daily basis by a woman with you know with this addiction and with this novel, I just kind of really wanted to focus mostly on the parents, <laughs> you know, whether traditional or non-traditional. I kind of wanted to keep the focus, let the children pop in and, and cause a little bit of havoc. I wanted to focus on the people, on the parents of these people causing havoc. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it is interesting because your book covers a lot of ground and a lot of years. Did you ever think that maybe you wanted to keep it just in a certain decade or were you from the very beginning sure that you wanted to show a very long span of time? Yeah, I knew that I wanted to show a long time, but I also knew that I didn't want the book to be long. I didn't want to write like a six, 700 page book. So I, I had to also make the decision early that there would be some jumps in time. And all my readers are not so happy about the jumps in time, you know, and I actually, I understand them, <laughs> you know, but every year doesn't have an exciting occurrence. And so we can just skip it. <laughs> The pages within here, like I said, you cover a lot of ground. It's certainly not a book that feels like you're not getting enough. It's just so great that way. You get so much generational material, just like the generations of characters in your book. There's something so timeless about this story. But I know readers will see themselves in one or even several characters and that is what's so beautiful about it for anyone who has a fiery temper raising my hand uh, <laughs> you know like not does for anyone who has a loving spirit like Otis Lee does and the fact that your characters are so beautifully written and so beautifully flawed like us yeah. all I mean who isn't flawed and who doesn't struggle in the fact that they have these nuances about themselves that they struggle with or they even love about themselves what I loved as well is that all of your characters are so unapologetically themselves 
Yes. And I loved that so much, which you don't always find in right. books. And I just was wondering, why do you think that we need beautiful storytelling now more than ever? There are books that were written 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, like Dickens, obviously, from the 19th century, that yeah. still people pick up today, still resonate with people. I love mm -hmm. the reference that Knott has in the book, and it's a character from Great Expectations. And yeah. I just wanted to know, as one storyteller to somebody who loves beautiful storytelling, why do you think we really need that today? I think that a lot of history gets lost in the lack of storytelling. And uh, I know some people would say, we don't need to live in the past, we don't need to live in the past, but the truth is we kind of are living in the past. Things are not as different as we would like to believe they are. <laughs> and I think storytelling keeps us connected with the world outside of our own bubble. It shows us that we are not so different from other people now or 100 years ago. Like, in the old curiosity shop, this old man is obsessed with making sure that his granddaughter is okay when he dies. And you can walk out on the street now and find a 75, 80-year-old man, and he would tell you, I just want to make sure my grandkids have something when I'm gone. That's timeless and universal. And so that's one of the reasons why I love Dickens. But I think it's storytelling is important to keep us connected to people who are different from us, but at the same time, very similar. <laughs> and time periods that are obviously different, but yet very similar. Yeah, and you can see yourself relating to things that happened in the 1800s as much as you can see in the 1980s. I mean, as you said, you might be have a gap of 200 years between right. people, <laughs> but again, you, you see yourself in, in those people, how you're seeing storytelling evolving and how you're seeing it changing. I have to have physical books. I cannot read yep. on a Kindle. I cannot read on a screen. For me, Dickens, Austin, Tolstoy, all of these authors from that time wrote the written word. And yes. whilst I am happy that things like the Kindle or audiobooks or anything like that get people to read, as in it mm. encourages them to read, there is something so wonderfully beautiful about holding a book physically yes. in your hands. Are you are you the same or do you cross over and do you do a bit of Kindle reading as well? I do a little bit of all three, but I still primarily like hard copy physical books. Yeah. There's just nothing like it. And, and I'm going to be such a nerd right now, but the smell and the just the... <laughs> and, and, and as well, when you're on the train or on a bus or anything like that and you're reading and everyone's like, oh, yeah, what is trying she to reading? Sneak. Exactly, trying to sneak and stuff like that. And I'm like, yes, you may absolutely see what I'm reading. And that kind of brings me on to one of the questions I have about the cover. Yeah. So we have, I'm assuming not on the cover. Um, yeah. And she's in this beautiful yellow dress, and it is one of her dresses that she feels very brave and very strong in. And I also love that her sisters, when she goes back home, knit her a yellow quilt. Mm -hmm. And that for me is yellow is her color. And yellow yeah. to me has a lot of roots in sunshine and brightness. And I'm assuming that that was not coincidence that not wears a color that is very noticeable, is very bright. It's like, look at me. There is a lot of love in this book. 
not just me loving it, but uh, love <laughs> everywhere. Love between Not and her friend Valley, who mm-hmm. we haven't really talked about, but we'll talk about in a minute. Love between Pep and Otis Lee. So husband yep. and wife, they love each other. And love between Not and her daughters, who mm-hmm. she doesn't really have a lot of access to, but she watches them from afar. And it's funny because they find out, obviously, who she is. They've known who she is for a while. And they, again, love her from afar. And then we get to the very end of the book. This scene, oh, it makes me emotional (laughs) just thinking about it. (laughs) We see this flashback example of just how fiercely Otis Lee really did love Not. Not that you'd ever question it, because it's true and it's evident in things that he does, things that Mm -hmm. he says to check on her. But we see this flashback, and it's implied throughout the book, but never confirmed that they love each other. And Pep knows it. And and one of the lines in the book that gave me chills was when Breezy, oh my gosh, this twist. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I don't want to give it away because people will will find out later in the book. But Breezy, uh, Otis Lee and Pep's son has something, a a bit of a commitment issues is is what I'll say. Um, He loves two women. And uh, I'm not going to say who those two women are, but he loves two women and then Breezy is having a fight with Otis Lee about choosing. And yeah. Breezy then says, well, what about you, dad? You love two women. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, mom <laughs> and not. Because yeah. everybody knows it. Everybody knows how much he loves her. <laughs> but do you think it's ever too late to tell somebody that you love them or to tell them the truth? If you don't think it's too late, do you think you should actually tell them? No, I don't think it's ever too late if the person is alive and are able to get the message and understand it, then no, it's too it's not too late. But I do think in some circumstances it's best not to. So if not and Otis Lee love each other romantically, then it's probably no use for Otis Lee to confess a romantic love or vice versa. There's no use unless they plan to act on it. (laughs) But then we wouldn't have this beautiful scene where Pratt comes back. I love it so much. But going back to the platonic side of love and the platonic side of friendships. So Valley is not friend after him. She cares very much about him. He is a gay man living Mm -hmm. in West Mills and he is so funny. So yeah. <laughs> funny. I love him. You know, whether they're just like sat talking or whether they're at the bar and right. he's talking about the type of men he likes and she's talking about the type of men she likes. Yeah. I just, I loved him. I wanted more Valley. Was Valley meant to be in the book to the degree that he was? Or did you want more Valley and maybe decided you would hold back? How did you come to bring Valley into the story and how did you feel about him when you were writing? Yeah, so initially there was no Valley at all. And then there was a classmate said, you don't have any queer characters in your book. Is that intentional? And I was like, oh my God, you're right. And I think that was because even though I definitely grew up around, not a lot, but a handful of men in the community who were definitely, even though they were married and had children, they still presented in a way that would be considered gay. They were so on the edges that they didn't really come to my mind right away. And I was trying also with this book not to be autobiographical. Um, So I think that also influenced my decision or 
it may have influenced the reason why I wasn't thinking queer character, queer character. But when this classmate mentioned it, I was like, you know what, I'm going to put a queer character in. And then I felt like he was taken over. And so I said, you know what, I got to send him out of town a lot. Because if I don't, it's going to be the Not and Valley show. <laughs> and staying on the subject of connections, going back to Not and her daughters, like I said, they grew up from afar. It's like the worst kept secret in town. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's very similar to, which we haven't actually talked a lot about Otis Lee and his background. So again, I'm not going to go into it because it's going to give it away. But his family, Essie, Rose, and Miss Noni, people mm-hmm. that he's grown up his entire life thinking he knows who they are. And then to suddenly have your life turned upside down. But we don't actually learn the truth until much later in the book. But we definitely know that there's always two sides to a story. Sometimes there's three sides. But as I said, I love that your book goes into all of those different perspectives. And I actually have two questions for this. So the first question, just thinking about it, did you want to reveal his truth earlier on? So we know that Valley tells not Mm -hmm. uh, the truth because Valley has a connection to Otis Lee. But did you want to let readers know that truth early on or were you absolutely adamant that you wanted us to really know about it later on in the book? So I wanted the reader to know early so that you all would be like, when is he going to find out and how? That was intentional. But then but it is interesting because as a reader, you do have that piece of information, but you have no idea how the people in his lives are going to tell him. Exactly. You have no idea how he's going to react. Right. It's almost like you're holding your breath and then you finally get to exhale and be there alongside him. But I really wanted to talk about uh, Knott's family as well. So Knott has moved to in West Mills and she goes back home and there's a scene with her mother, which (laughs) is very (laughs) difficult to read. Yeah. Made me hurt (laughs) reading that part. Again, I'm not going to give it away. Yeah. But as a woman, the source of, of our womanhood is being attacked, right. which is the biggest irony of, its, of itself, especially after she's just given birth and uh, is, is feeling everything. Mm-hmm. And this very tricky relationship that she has with her family. So she has her sisters, she has her mom, she has her father. And for me, it was really interesting because the way in which we connect with our mother versus the way in which we connect with our father is so different. Each relationship is special, but she struggles with her mother. Her mother is very proper. She has a very set way of doing things, of believing things. Her sisters have gone more down that traditional route. Mm -hmm. In a way, not as kind of the odd one out because she's not done that traditional route. But her father very much, I felt like, wanted to tell her it's okay to be who you are, but he was so loyal to her mother. Yes. But he shared his love of reading with her. They had that connection, which I just loved so much. Mm -hmm. Um, But she does struggle. So she comes home. We find out that someone has told her parents what's happened. Yeah. When you find out who that is, you are just (laughs) absolutely gobsmacked. That was the one part that I was just like, nope, got to put that book down for a minute and and deal with this. But what I'm kind of getting at is the way in which not is the way she is. 
is definitely a direct result of her upbringing of her family. And this sense that you want to rebel and Mm -hmm. not be just a cookie cutter version of the rest of your family is so difficult because you start having arguments with yourself and you start saying, well, maybe I should have done it that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. But then you're also very much fiercely proud of who you've become because you haven't done that. Right. What do you think of that? Like I'm trying to spit out a question here, but I very much relate to this. Right. Yeah. How do you feel about that feeling of going off and doing your own thing, but also looking back and saying, was it the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, up until recently, that was a struggle that I had. I'm not one of those gay men who, who I think could have pretended to be straight and gotten married and had children and stuff. I just would have made some young lady miserable. But that, you know, there have been times when I've thought maybe I could have stayed in my hometown and had a decent life. Uh, Maybe some of the mistakes I made in my 20s in New York City, I wouldn't have made if I had just stayed in my hometown. But then I think now, and when I I was writing the novel from like, I think I was like 36, 37 or whatever. And during that time, I would look back and say, but you probably wouldn't be writing. And you probably wouldn't have met these people who are very important to you now. And, you you know, you may have gone to school for something you were completely disinterested in, which I did do for a while. And so I think that not also has that same struggle. The, like, the what if I didn't drink and if I had kept my babies and... But also, I'm free, and I can go and walk in my pantry and gobble down this liquor if I want, (laughs) you know? It's funny, because people who don't understand when you make those choices see them as purely selfish. And that's also something that you have to grapple with, because as much as it would be nice to say we don't care what people think... We do. We do. We care (laughs) so much what people think. Yes. But I think that's also why I found not so refreshing because mm-hmm. she doesn't right. care what people think. But, well, maybe that's a little unfair to say that. Maybe she does. But at the same time, as I said, she is very unapologetically herself. And she's not willing to give up those freedoms, the drinking, the books. It's kind of funny because books are my life. Yeah. And there are very few things or people (laughs) that I'm going to put before books. (laughs) And I think that's also why I love not so much because she just, she just gets it. She gets the books thing. But as I said, your book is just so beautiful, (laughs) so timeless, so such a delight to read. And I was just wondering, how do you want your characters, Otis Lee, Pep, Ma Noni, not Valley, how do you want them to live on in the minds and hearts of your readers? How do you want us to take them with us and remember them? I think especially for sort of like the main characters, I think not is a symbol of we have agency. It's really hard to have that taken away. I think with Otis Lee, he is a symbol of pretty much unconditional love, but there is always someone that we can turn to. He's also proof that sometimes 
you have to just let people be themselves. We get that message from his life and his attempts. And with Pep, one thing I like about Pep, to me, she's sort of like a symbol of we are all human, meaning we can be very, very nice and caring and sweet, but we also will defend ourselves (laughs) fiercely when we need to. And every once in a while, that means somebody else gets hurt. But we can be repentant. You know, we can ask for forgiveness, whether it be for religious people, that's from the higher being, or we can ask for forgiveness from the people in our lives. So, you know, those are the, the stories I want people to remember or the messages I want people to remember when they finish reading this book. As you were going through all the characters, I kind of feel like, and forgive my analogy, but this is how I feel it. All of these characters are like a utility belt of who you want in your life. Yeah. So someone who will love you unconditionally, regardless of your flaws, someone who will stand up for you, even when someone that's sharing your bed doesn't agree with the way in which you're doing it. Because Pep doesn't always agree with Otis Lee when it comes to not. And she sees how he cares about her. And that cannot be easy to watch your husband love someone. I'm going to say almost, if not a little bit more than he loves you, but he never strays. He is so loyal to his family and breezy, even though he he does (laughs) not make life easy for himself. He loves who he loves. Yes. (laughs) And Bally, so funny. Not that the other characters aren't funny, but you created a character who wouldn't have had a voice in other stories, especially not at that period. And you gave him an opportunity to be heard. And that for me was, again, why I loved Bally and I loved the book because everyone got an opportunity to be heard. Yeah. Nobody was silenced. Nobody, (laughs) certainly no one would allow themselves to be silent. (laughs) And looking at, we see our main characters move on in different Mm -hmm. ways. And we see the new generations. And just like those generations, the children, the grandchildren, they will carry on the stories of Not and Pep and Otis Lee. Oh, it's making me so emotional. Thank you. It moves us on to the last question, which is I would love for you to imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf and Mm -hmm. it's frozen in time. So great literature, frozen in time. And I would love to know what other books and authors you would want to be alongside your book on that shelf. I would love for my book to hang out with the books of all African-American women who were writing like in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. That time period in literature, especially African-American writers, was definitely read works by African-American men. I feel like I've really connected to the ones written by the African-American women. So I would love for it to be on a shelf with with those ladies. Zora Neale Hurston and Tony Morrison, Morrison, Alice Walker. Yeah. And again, beautiful storytellers. Yes. So let's just have an entire shelf of beautiful storytellers that cannot end. It just keeps going. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. So um, for anyone that wants to get in touch with you, what is the best way to do that? 
The best way to get in touch with me is to go to my website, which is DeshaunCharlesWinslow.com, and there's a contact button somewhere. <laughs> Sends it to my email, and I do reply to everyone. Wonderful. I love that. (laughs) Well, Deshaun, I honestly, I cannot thank you enough for chatting with me today. I could literally talk about in West Mills forever. Congratulations again for being nominated for an LA Times award. Uh, Absolutely 1 million percent well-deserved. And I know that, as I said, your book will just be on shelves for generations and generations to come. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you for all the, the love and support you've shown this book. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading.